Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Brain Food Show. This one is part two in our series. Series is a two-part thing, really, a series, but it's a wonderful life. Uh, last week, we teased this episode as hard as the guy with that first trailer, who about Kathleen, Kathleen sure. being thrown to the lions. Yeah. What did she survive? And honestly, I don't know because did I didn't actually look up that serial, so we'll never know. Uh, lost to history. Also, who cares? Yeah. Some random series from like the 1920s or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So last week we talked about It's a Wonderful Life, the movie. But, you know, you are in the notes, it says Simon Sum Up. All I remember is how much of a legend Jimmy Stewart was. Yeah, pretty like, much. That dude, well, he started out by going to Princeton and becoming like an airport designer. And then he became a movie star. And then he became a pilot. And then he became a general in the military. Yeah. And then he went back to making movies yeah. and won an Academy Award. Yeah, pretty much. It's, it's intense. That's yeah. an intense career. And we'll have a little bit more on, uh, on some other stuff he did in the bonus facts later at the end of this episode as well. Wow. Okay. There's I kind more. of assumed after that he just died and everyone <laughs> thought he was a complete legend and that was okay. No, there's more. Are we having a quick fact today? Or it says, you know, do what everyone's been waiting for in this episode. Are we doing yeah. that first? Before yeah, so we're just going to jump right into it after bro, what, the, the sponsor for this episode. Skillshare, guys. Like I say, this is what you've been waiting for. This episode is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community for creators with thousands of classes in design, business, and more. Now listen, you're listening to this show, and that means that you can get two months for free, a free trial just for our listeners. All you have to do is go to skillshare.com forward slash brain food and you'll get that free trial. And now I know you might just think, oh, I'm just going to Google Skillshare and go over to the website. And, you know, maybe, you know, one of those magical apps will tell me the, a discount code for two months. But do us a favor. You can support this show. If you go to skillshare.com forward slash brain food, that lets Skillshare know that we sent you. And that's, uh, that's just generally a good thing to do. And it helps us keep making these podcasts, which, uh, which, to be honest, they're a bit of a beast to make. They are. So that's nice. Yeah. Skillshare, basically, like I said, they've got all these classes in design and business and stuff. But what I'd like to point out to you guys, if you're listening to this podcast and thinking, I could do that, Simon and Damon, amateurs, <laughs> look at all their technical troubles. Yeah. What a joke. Uh, <laughs> tell you what. Skillshare. It's because I have to say a lot of our technical. It's because we. It's because we can't. We don't actually have a technical guy to. We, if we could afford them, if we got more sponsors. I, I think our biggest problem is we are doing it from other sides of the yeah. planet. And there's this course on Skillshare, which basically tells you how to do podcasts properly. So if you're like I say, if you're listening to this thinking I could do that and I could do it better, well, put your money where your mouth is. Go sign up to Skillshare. There's a course on there. It's by. Uh, there's a big podcast platform called Anchor, like a major distributor. And they put together this Skillshare original course. So a course just for Skillshare, all about how to make a podcast. It goes from what is a podcast, which to be fair, if you're listening to this, you could probably skip that episode. But it is amazing and, how many uh, people like ask that even still in like, what is it, 2019? People are still like, what's a podcast? What's the point of a podcast? And even the people sometimes who listen to the podcast, it's like, what, what, what's the point of a podcast? I'm not just going to sit there and watch, right? And it's like, no, it's like a radio show. You're supposed to go do yeah. stuff. Have you heard of you the listen. radio? Yeah, like this is just the same type of thing. But it's amazing how many comments you get. Like, not, well, I can't. Podcasts are stupid. I'm not just going to sit there. That, that blows my mind, even still. It, it, it's kind of bizarre. 
Uh, I think, like, especially, I imagine people who are listening to this, they're yeah. uh, they're they're into the podcast game. But you know, yeah. we're recording this. This is a Christmas episode, so it's almost twenty twenty. I would say if you've been thinking like whether you've got some goal, some life dream, whether that's you know making a podcast or whatever, go on to Skillshare. Um, obviously, if you're thinking about making a podcast, check out that uh, podcasting course from the Anchor guys. It's it's excellent. Like I say, what is a podcast all the way through to gear, recording, mastering, all that great stuff. Or you know, if you're curious about something else, if you're a lifelong learner, which you might be, you're listening to an educational podcast. Check out Skillshare. There are seven million creators learning with Skillshare. Learn along with them in groups. Get two months for free. Skillshare.com forward slash brain food. And after that, still super affordable. So that's all pretty great. Go check it out, guys. And uh, should we crack on? We should. So who was this mystery man that Frank Capra used as the sort of the basis of George Bailey, the character of George Bailey? So of course, as we mentioned in the last episode, it was actually the whole thing was based on this short story about this guy named George who then, you know, goes on a bridge. He's, you know, thinking of killing himself and the magician comes along and all that. So people have just listened to that probably. And if you haven't, you should go listen first. And then, so this, this is happens. And then Frank Capper gets it by that time. They adapt it quite a lot. So they have to actually come out. They have to fully flesh out the character of George Bailey. Like, who is this guy? What's his background and all this? And so who is this mystery man that Frank Capper used? And the man was named Amadio Pietro uh, Giannini. And better known, thankfully, Amadeo. Yeah, there you go. Uh, better known, thankfully, as AP Giannini. So, who was Giannini? So he gets his start in business at the age of fourteen in 1885. Because at the time, he's attending a college and he's learning to uh, basically be a businessman. But he's at school and he's thinking to himself, you know, he's he's a young teenager, so this is kind of uh, natural enough. He's like, well, this is stupid. I could learn more about business by actually going and you know running a business rather than learning from a book or from a teacher. A, you know, professor of business or whatever. And so he leaves school and he goes back home and he's working for his stepfather, Lorenzo Scatina, uh, and the family produce business. So and he's working as a produce broker. So and, and Giannini's father actually was the one who started this business, but he died when he, when Giannini was seven years old. He was killed as a result over an argument over a single dollar, which is about $30 today, oh. from one of his employees who killed him. Um, so this perhaps explains why... <laughs> I'm going to bet it had more to do with the dollar. Like, it's a nice story, but... Yeah. That dude's probably got something wrong with him. Yeah, yeah. So this might actually explain Giannini later in life. He has a reputation for shunning money and like not wanting to get wealthy and stuff. So that, I don't know, this might be the start of his non-love of money, even mm-hmm. though he his whole business empire was based on money. So he could this guy could have been one of the richest people in all of history if he had wanted to be. Uh, he chose not. Wow. He literally chose not to be, uh, as you'll see for reasons coming up. So. After his father's death, his mother then, Virginia, she's got two kids and she's pregnant with a third at the time. So she takes over running the company for a few years. And then she marries the aforementioned Lorenzo Scatina, who then uh, takes over management. And then later, fast forward, uh, Giannini is 14. He goes back and is working as a broker for the company, produce broker. So by the time AP was 31, he's then business is doing great. He was doing great. And he was able to sell much of his stake in the company to uh, to his employees, actually, is who he sold the shares to. Of course, he did. As you'll see, he, he was quite the, the advocate for the common man. So, and he, at this point, he, he decides to just retire at 31 years old. So, but one year later... Solid. Yeah. Uh, one year later, he's, he's off, uh, you know, traveling around doing his thing. And he gets asked to join the board of the Columbus Savings and Loan Society um, back in uh, North Beach, California. And so this, it was actually his stepfather who owned a large stake in it. And he wanted, he wanted uh, AP to be on the board there to help manage things. So he, he decides to agree. So he goes back. Um, and as he's there for the first time, he realizes uh, nobody 
loans to the common man. You have to either be rich or you have to own a business that's profitable. Like if you're not those things, there's no bank or savings and loan that will loan to you, uh, give you money. And this is obviously a big problem for there's lots of middle class and, and lower class people who have like great business ideas. And I feel know, like the rich people, it's like, okay, well, you don't need to borrow that much money. Yeah. <laughs> like you're already rich. Yeah, exactly. No one's lending to anyone that, you know, doesn't already have money. So the banks, I mean, of course, this, they think this works out. Everyone, the rich people put their money in there. And, and all that and get loans from them. So, you know, it seems like they'll get their money back. There's little chance of, uh, you know, losing their money when they loan to people and stuff like that, unless, you know, businesses go under sometimes. But um, for the most part, they figure this is going to work out for them. But Giannini, he takes the opposite tact and he's like, well, actually, working class citizens are great to lend to because if you, one, you give them like loans for homes and auto loans and businesses, among other things, and, and you'll see kind of very strongly mirroring George Bailey and, and the famous scene he does where he's, you give him that, and they're better citizens, you know, they, they live happier lives. And they will, in his opinion, they will pay the loan back because they, while they may, you know, be lacking in assets to guarantee the loan, they, they're generally honest people and they'll pay it back when they can. Like even if they're, you know, having a tough time, like eventually most people are honorable and they'll pay it back when they can. So this was his argument. And this is a huge pool of people that nobody else is lending to. And it could be like a boon to society, all this. So this is, these are the arguments he makes. And nobody at the savings and loan is listening to him about this. Like they're like, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. So Giannini, I, I think he, I think he's right, but I definitely see where those the other dudes are coming from. Yeah, but you can see like literally no one's doing this. This is a whole market of untapped people. So you could even yeah, have your choice. Absolutely, like you pick who you want. I mean, only the ones who seem like the most awesome. Like you can pick, and there's just like a huge pool of money and all this. So it's a good business move. It's good for the people, and it's good for the business. So. You know, this is and they're going to be lending smaller amounts of money, so you yeah. can just spread your risk by having more clients. Exactly, exactly. And so this, uh, I mean, you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life, but this is there's a, like a famous scene where George <laughs> Bailey is. This is his whole like point to the board that he, you know, quite uh, strongly. It's a, it's a great scene. You can go watch it sometime. But but this is sort of what he did uh, in the movie. So for the real life man, so he he's he's like, all right, I'm not going to be re retired anymore. Like you know, he was serving on this board, but otherwise not doing much. So he's he's going to start his own bank. So he ends up, you know, he's was a wealthy businessman before he retired and everything. So he ends up using some of his own money and 150 and friends and family and stuff. So he ends up drumming together $150,000, which is about $4.2 million today uh, to start his own bank, which he initially calls the Bank of Italy. And it's better known today as one of the biggest companies in the world, the Bank of America. So he starts this in 1904. And so this this is the the basic point of this is he's going to lend money to the common man and i'm sure i'm sure he also lent to businesses and stuff but his big shtick was the he would lend to just normal everyday citizens for home loans business loans all this sort of stuff uh so and the first bank of italy you think about the company nowadays you know one of the most you know largest in the world so the first bank of italy was started and it was converted in an old converted saloon across the street from the savings and loan he had formerly been a director of and the the first Assistant teller there was a former bartender at that very saloon. It's the person he hired to be to be his teller. That'd be weird. You go into the same place for yeah, work, but yeah. instead of being a barman, you're now a teller. Yeah, exactly. And so, and also to cater to the common man. So at the time, banks usually closed around 3 p.m. And he his his bank of Italy closed at 10 p.m. because you know most people worked. You know the common guy worked worked super long hours back then, and so they they couldn't even go to the bank often in the daytime. So. Stayed open super late so they could come. And then he needed to, and this seems so weird today, but he actually had to like actively educate the working class on what exactly a bank does and how they can help them. Like, because people just, you know, they didn't deal with banks. Like, it wasn't like a thing. What? 
how do people buy houses and stuff? Well, you had to have the money. Like, like otherwise you rent it. I mean, like <laughs> even like Britain and stuff, everyone just rented all the time, right? Like that's still like that's at least that's a common thing in all the old stories from like like no one owned really, except for successful business people who then, you know. Because Britain even yeah, I guess. even today, isn't it like something absurd, like 90% of like all of the land is owned by like a, like 1% of the population in Britain or something like that. I, there's some stat like that, which was crazy. When, when well, I, there's, there's something where it's like, I think the queen technically owns all the land yeah. or something like this, yeah. um, but it doesn't really mean anything yeah. in actuality. Yeah. But I think it's less than it used to be because definitely the aristocracy or like the upper class used to own a lot of stuff, like yeah. land owners. But then also I feel... You're right. Like whenever this was, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever, um, people didn't buy homes. And then what I guess like my parents' generation, everyone was buying homes. Like that was a mm-hmm. big thing. Like mm-hmm. and now yeah. the price of property in the UK and is just so high. People just can't afford houses anymore. You know, getting on the property mm-hmm. ladder is a major, major struggle for a lot of people. Yeah. So yeah, so he goes about uh educating the common man. Um, to, to, you know, what, what's it going to do for them? How can a bank help them? And why should they, you know, they could get loans and stuff for, for business ideas, homes, you know, cars, that sort of thing. And so within a single mm-hmm. year, he had grown the Bank of Italy just using this and, you know, the common man funds, uh, people depositing money and, and, you know, getting loans. So he had over $700,000 in deposits from this working class individuals. We're now using a bank for the first time. So it's around $20 million today. That's just one year in. Two years after the Bank of Italy was founded, though, there was a huge snag that was encountered. So, and it could have ruined the bank and it ruined a lot of banks in the area at the time, uh, but instead ended up helping vault it into even higher success and played a pretty critical role as uh, in the, in, you know, the, the rebuilding of San Francisco, which was almost completely wiped out at 512 AM local time on April 18th, 1906. There's a, the, the citizens, they wake up, there's a little bit of shaking, you know, happening, little earthquake. And then that lasts for a little bit and then it stops. And then 20, 25 seconds later, a massive earthquake hits that lasts 45 to 60 seconds. It's a 7.7 to 8.25 earthquake uh, that actually occurred. Two, the epicenter was about two miles uh, from the city of San Francisco in Muscle Rock. Uh, and so the earthquake actually could be felt all the way from Oregon to Los Angeles and inland to uh, central Nevada. And so one, it ended up being one of the worst natural disasters in the history of the U.S. So to describe the event, we have earthquake survivor P. Barrett um, stating, All of a sudden, we had found ourselves staggering and reeling. It was as if the earth was slipping gently from under our feet. Then came the sickening swaying of the earth that threw us flat upon our faces. We struggled in the street. We could not get on our feet. Then it seemed as though my head was split with the roar that crashed into my ears. Big buildings were crumbling as one might crush a biscuit in one's hand. Ahead of me, a great cornice crushed a man as if he were a maggot. A laborer in overalls on his way to the Union Ironworks with a dinner pail on his arm. That's intense. Yeah. I felt an earthquake. I was in I was in Mexico and it was the middle of the night mm-hmm. and I just woke up and like all of the stuff on my nightstand had fallen onto the floor. And I was like, yeah. well, that's super weird. And then I went back to sleep. And apparently I woke up and someone was like, well, that was a pretty big earthquake in the night. And I was like, ah, okay. Yeah, I've only felt like a few, but they were all really minor where it's just like, you're kind of that, wait a minute, is this stuff shaking? And then you're like, oh. And then by the time yes. you're like, yeah, it is. And then it's over and you're like, oh, cool. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not what these guys went through. <laughs> no, not at all. So a few hours later, there was um, after the there was a major aftershock that occurred at 8.14 a.m., which also destroyed a lot more buildings. It wasn't as big, obviously, as the first. But yeah, it was still quite devastating. 
San Francisco was the most famous city affected, but there was actually several other cities that were considerably damaged, including San Jose, Santa Rosa, um, and the latter, the, the entire downtown was basically demolished. Um, and then the, the Salinas River, the mouth diverted six miles south of its previous course, which that's not good. Yeah, so in Los Angeles so at noon, there was, a, uh, there was a couple of earthquakes that happened there um, uh, shortly after, obviously, several hours after. So if the earthquake wasn't bad enough, so there was also fires that broke out, right? So ruptured gas mains. So there's fires burning throughout the city. And uh, on the note of the fires, the funny thing about this, I, I mean, I guess it's not funny, funny, but a little bit funny because it's been like, you know, a century. So we can laugh at it now. Uh, so an estimated 50% of the buildings that ended up getting destroyed wouldn't have been except for, for two things. First, the firefighters who were trying to create like these, you know, like these little fire block lines. So they were destroying buildings intentionally yeah, yeah, yeah. using dynamite. And so they were these lines of buildings that they were destroying. But the problem was they were really inexperienced on doing this. And so they ended up starting a lot of fires with the with their dynamite. <laughs> and, guys. Yeah. Besides also destroying lines of buildings and everything. So we have a quote from Jerome B. Clark, who is a businessman from Berkeley, who was visiting San Francisco at the time. And he describes these efforts. Fires were blazing in all directions, and all of the finest and best of the office and business buildings were either burning or surrounded. They pumped water from the bay, but the fire was soon too far away from the waterfront to make efforts in this direction of much avail. The water mains had been broken by the earthquake, and so there was no supply for the fire engines and they were helpless. The only way out was to dynamite, and I saw some of the finest and most beautiful buildings in the city, new modern palaces blown to atoms. First, they blew up one or two buildings at a time. Finding that of no avail, they took half a block. That was no use. They then took a block, but in spite of them all, the fire kept on spreading. That's yeah, uh, so just demolishing entire blocks. Yeah, just for it's, it's a lot being of stuff. Not very effective. So then a second factor, and this is kind of funny too. So a lot of the people that owned the buildings were actually the problem with a lot of the fires. So it turns out most people didn't have earthquake insurance. But they did, a lot of people had fire insurance. So as, if their buildings were severely damaged or kind of destroyed, they would just start fires. <laughs> They're just going to set them on fire. <laughs> yeah. And so that they would just finish destroying it if it wasn't completely already. And so they could actually make a claim and get the building fixed. And so a lot of people did this. And then there was one lady, there was a woman who made, was making breakfast for her family after. And it's known as the ham and eggs fire. And she actually accidentally started the fire, which burned down. Uh, apparently part of the Western edition, the mechanics pavilion, city hall, and then jumped to Market Street at ninth to destroy that part too. So uh, the horrible scene is, is uh, this is actually kind of brutal. So there's a quote from uh, Adolphus Bush who recalls one event while he was watching as these fires are progressing. The most terrible thing I saw was the futile struggle of a policeman and others to rescue a man who was pinned down in burning wreckage. The helpless man watched it in silence till the fire began burning his feet. Then he screamed and begged to be killed. The policeman took his name and address and shot him through the head. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That got intense. Right? Uh, that seems so, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, especially wow. at, at the time, I mean, I guess if he's, I don't know, depending on how he was pinned, they can't really like, like if it was just his leg, maybe they could just cut it off. But apparently he was pinned more severely than that. Um, and they couldn't get him out, which is, I don't know, seems so crazy. But yeah, so what was the total damage of the earthquake and fires together? So over 3,000 people died, which doesn't seem like a huge number considering there was 410,000 people. But more significantly, 80% of the city of San Francisco was completely destroyed. And that left 250 to 300,000 people were left homeless after this earthquake. So the vast, you know, vast majority of the population there uh, is now suddenly homeless with many of their possessions destroyed and all that. 
And so at the time, San Francisco was the ninth largest city in the U.S. Uh, and the largest on the West Coast. But this quite changed that quite rapidly because a lot of people after, directly after then migrated down to Los Angeles, which then made it the dominant city in California. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of stayed that way since. Um, and San Francisco is no longer like the, you know, at the time it was like the gateway to the Pacific. You know, it was a major, I mean, it still is a major port, but, you know, at the time it was the the port. So it's a... Uh- an earthquake like this will happen again, right? Yeah, there's I actually- remember studying this in geography when I was a kid, this earthquake, and people are like, yeah, it, you know, this is a major fault line. Yeah, well, and the, there's also one up near Seattle, too, I know people talk about because it's like supposedly overdue for whatever that's worth with the studies, and it's supposed mm-hmm. to be like a, you know, they're, they're overdue for like a super major one that, that would cause a lot of problems for people like uh, living here on the coast. So, yeah, at some <laughs> point, you know. Do you have earthquake insurance? I don't know. Well, actually, I'm just renting now. So <laughs> so that's because I just moved over here. So so yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Although I do have, I'm, I'm surrounded by like trees, like really tall, huge trees. So I'm, that's not going to work out for me. Like in the house, I'm sure. I have, I have a house in the forest and I have insurance against trees falling because, you know, the trees die and they fall over. I yeah. have a specific line in my insurance for damage from trees falling onto the house. No, and Bellingham's super windy. And like, these are like trees of death. Like, and there was uh, just the other day that was windy and I'm driving along to the office and sure enough, there's a, there's a house that was just like crushed by a tree, random tree. And, it, and it's, it's, just, it's disconcerting when you live in the house. Cause, and like my brother's a paramedic, right? And, and this is not earthquake time. This is just, just regular, this is regular wind. It wasn't even that severe of wind. And like my brother's a paramedic and he's like, oh yeah, I've been to calls before where people are just like, he's like one of them, this tree fell on the, uh, on the house. And it just literally hits right where the woman was sleeping in her bed. And like, that was just it. It hit like, right. It couldn't have landed more squarely centered on her. And she was, you know, there's nothing to clean up. It was just, yep, she's jelly now. And so there's nothing for us to do. Uh, So yeah, call in the, I don't know who they call in to cut up the tree. And you just think about trees of death all around. around. That's what I got. But yeah, Yeah, it's pretty intense. Earthquake that that's definitely not going to work out for me. So hopefully that doesn't happen. my dad's car got crushed by a tree. Yeah. That's yeah. less, less intense, but more personal. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a big storm in like, uh, I think it was 1986 in the UK. And yeah, after the storm, my dad woke up and there was a, there was a big tree just that crushed his car. <laughs> it's not great. So yeah. So where does AP Giannini come into all of this? So, so his bank is in rubble at this time. Like his was one of the ones that's destroyed. Building's gone. As you might imagine, 80% of the buildings were destroyed. So odds are strong there. So mm-hmm. similar to when George Bailey in the stock market crashed, that sort of really famous scene, H.P. Giannini, despite his building being crashed and everything going, you know, everything's destroyed and fires everywhere, he stays open. He manages to stay open, keep his bank open, and he's the only bank to do so. In fact, most of the banks didn't reopen for several weeks. And this is a major problem when everyone who has money to fix the situation doesn't have access to their money. You know, they don't have credit cards. They need the money from the All actual right. banks. And everyone who has this money, they, they don't have it. So then there's George Bailey, or there's APG and Giannini, who, you know, he's got his safe. Like, all the money's in the safe. The building's destroyed, but he's still got the safe. So he goes in the early morning, directly after the earthquake. So he finds a, um, a garbage man uh, who has a garbage man's wagon, right? So he then makes a deal with that. The, the garbage man was named Giobatta Cipollini, or Cipollina, who then makes a deal with him. He says, all right, I will hire your son at my bank. Uh, and then if you let me use your wagon. And so he agrees. And incidentally, Cepolini's or Cepolina's son ends up retiring at 41. So this is a wagoneer's son, garbage man, and retires at 41, quite wealthy, thanks to his lucrative career at Bank of America. 
So that there worked out. Go. That worked out. But anyways, he gets this he gets this wagon and he gathers, he's got two million dollars in his safe, about two million dollars. So it's about fifty-six million dollars today. He puts it in the wagon. And like this is risky. Everyone's on the streets, you know. Yeah. Uh, so he's got $56 million. Everyone's now suddenly homeless. <laughs> yeah, and he's got $56 million in a wagon, so he piles garbage on top of it, smartly. So And he's in a garbager's wagon, so it just looks like he's hauling garbage. So what does he do with this? He takes it out to the dock, right? So he goes to the docks, he sets up two barrels and gets a plank of wood and puts it on for a desk, and then he opens up shop. He's a bank, he's got $2 million there, or about $56 million today, and he starts lending to people, to businesses. Everyone who doesn't have access to their money and the common man to, to the working class, everything. But the problem is here, you might see a problem is not only, not only is everything destroyed. So like everyone needs money. Now he's got a lot of it, but a lot of people don't even have IDs at this point. Like everything is destroyed. They're just like some guy on the street saying, I would like a loan for, for this or that, you know, or just to buy food or whatever. And so he's loaning it, but he's yeah. loaning to most of these people just off a handshake and they write down their name, you know? And so he can track them down and they agree to pay him back. And that's how he's doing this. And what Giannini, he, he claims, and this was something he, he bragged about later, is that every single one of those was paid back in full. Like nobody, and this throughout his career, he claims, he, not once on the ones he personally granted, uh, these loans would just often, you know, handshake. And he, he judged his loans based on how he judged the person's character. He didn't really care about their assets. He, I mean, he, I'm, he cared at some level, I'm sure. But for the most part, he was more concerned about their you know, their character, how he judged it. So, and this, he, he was always, you know, like to brag to the other banks that like, Hey, I'm lending to the common man. I'm basing it off their character more and they all pay it back like every time. So, yeah. I mean, when at first I'm like, this is a great, like this guy's takes some risks. Like yeah. this seems, you know, that I would hesitate to. I think like his first one, it's risky, but it's yeah. smart. This is yeah, es- majorly risky, especially because he's got no IDs and these are just random people often exactly. um, telling him what they want money for and what they need it for. And they're going to pay him back. You know, they're just signing like he has no way of tracking them down. Like a lot of again, a lot of these people just went to Los Angeles, but he, he claims every single one paid it back. So, so yeah, oh, the other thing he did, so he, not only does he open the bank, so he's the only place people can come get cash that don't already have it on hand, you know, because no one can go to the banks that, that can. So he's got that. But at the same, he immediately, one of the first things he does is charter ships to send to Washington and Oregon to acquire a lot of lumber. Like that, that's what they're going, get as much lumber as you can, because he knows there's going to be an inevitable material shortage for rebuilding efforts. And so, you know, he does this. And so it turns out this lumber that he chartered to go get was what comprised most of the lumber in the early rebuilding stages of San Francisco. So it kind of accelerated efforts there. And so going on from there, so he he was a big part of helping get San Francisco going faster again and helping people out in the immediate aftermath to get money. And so his his bank also instituted a ton of practices, which are kind of boring to talk about. So I'm not going to, but just know quite a lot of modern bank banking things were that was this guy who, who started them. And uh, not all modern banking things are bad. Some are quite good. And uh, he, he did a lot of good ones. So but he was also more more kind of interesting was the he was a key figure in making so many California industries what they are today, as you would expect from the only guy who's, you know, investing to tons of, like he's investing to a lot more people because he's, you know, doing the common man, you know, doing businesses. So he's actually responsible for quite a bit of the industries. For instance, the California wine industry, he was integral in getting that started because no one wanted to, you know, wine at the time, you only grew it, good wine was grown in France, you know? And so California, you're starting a budding wine industry that's that's risky. Banks didn't want a loan for it. He was happy to. And then, so moving on from there, Hollywood, a lot of the early, uh, again, same type of thing, early days of Hollywood, nobody wanted to invest in it or, or loan money. 
and uh, he was happy to do so in certain cases. And so probably the most notable one was Walt Disney. So he, he funded a lot of the early days of Walt Disney and including most notably the breakthrough film Snow White. So this was actually at the time, at the time Disney was making this, this was, you know, widely panned as like Disney's folly. It was going to sink the young company because it was their first ever feature length film they'd ever done. And also the first fe- uh, full length animated film ever in color. Uh, and so, and at the time, this thing was $2 million, about $32 million today over budget and still not out. So that was about 400% over the original budget for the film by the time it came out. And people thought the way it's a, you know, animated and they thought kids, they're not going to like the Wicked Witch and the Enchanted Forest is going to be too scary. Kids aren't going to like it. Adults aren't going to like it. This thing's going to be a huge flop and it costs an insane amount of money. And, you know, it's the, the company couldn't have survived if it, if it flopped. Giannini was happy to invest in it. And on December 21st, 1937, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs comes out, premieres at the Carthay Theater in L.A., and it ended up grossing, if you adjust it for inflation, $1.6 billion, and really, you know, launched Disney to the the behemoth, you know, got the start of what it is today. And so that was... uh, That's got to be the biggest grossing movie of all time. Wasn't... No, there's... I swear, a movie... There's more now. Recently did a billion. No, there's... there's, Oh, really? Okay. Marvel movies are like, you know, like everyone, practically... And that, the Marvel, the, the the ones you haven't seen, they're the um, Endgame. Endgame is the all-time. And then, of course, like Titanic and what's the one with the blue people? James Cameron. Uh, Smurfs? Avatar. Avatar. Oh, yeah. yeah oh, that, I saw that. That was bad. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of visually stunning. That was the whole thing. But uh, yeah, that was the one Endgame finally surpassed. But although if you adjust for inflation, you know, there's other movies. Uh, you know, Gone with the Wind is, is generally considered. 2.8 billion. Yeah. Oh my, a- Avengers Endgame. Just look at, oh man. Look at like the top 20 or 30 there on the list. And it's just like Disney, 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 or Marvel, of course. But it's just, uh, Disney's just making money like crazy right now. But yeah, not for Giannini. Loaning the money back way back in the day for Disney's supposed folly. Wow. Yeah. So also he helped fund like the United Artists, which was big. It was like Charlie Chapman, Douglas Fairbank, and DW Griffith's uh, thing and uh, tons of other similar things. He, he was heavily invested in a lot of the early days of Hollywood and also significant for California. He loaned money to the founders of HP, William Hewlett and David Packard, and also several other companies in that region, which helped found Silicon Valley. Dude, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to go back because I looked up while you were talking. I know I shouldn't, I should pay attention, but the top 10 lifetime grosses, right? Yeah. Four Avengers, four of the top 10 are Avengers movies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're good. That's mad. There's only one Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, well, because they haven't been awesome since, you know, the originals. So that's not working in their favor. So I've only seen three of these, four of these movies. You haven't even seen the Star Wars, have you? <laughs> no, I haven't seen Star Wars. Um, <laughs> Avengers Endgame, no. Avatar, yes. Titanic, yes. Star Wars, no. Avengers, no. Jurassic World, Yes, it was a bit disappointing though. Yeah. Lion King, of course. Avengers, no. Furious Seven, no. No, yeah. <laughs> wow, going down, it gets even worse. <laughs> God, okay, yeah. No, because I've seen yeah, none so of like, the comic book movies. They're so good, especially, uh, yeah. I've only seen Iron Man, which was fantastic. Yeah, it was, but they, I mean, Iron Man was one of the you know best, but they get better. Yeah, Infinity War and Endgame, so good. And Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok, so good. Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> you have seen the Guardians of the Galaxy, I know. Or Oh, yeah, I have seen that, but that's yeah. not in this list. Yeah. Really? Guardians of the Galaxy is all right. Like, I like the first one. The second one was okay. Yeah. It was a bit too silly. I, I like that. You might not like Thor Ragnarok. The whole thing's silly. 
I mean, it's like the perfect blend of humor, <laughs> humor, action, and drama. Like they, they, Marvel does that so well. Of like, it's completely hilarious and ridiculous. And then it's also like really good drama. Like they have really genuine, like heartfelt moments. And then you know, it's like this perfect blend of all. And then action. Their action is amazing. So it's like this perfect blend of of silly drama and 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 action. So yeah, they do it so well. Was, and their their attention was, to detail is what makes them so good. Like the littlest things. Like so, like Spider Man, right? So you might have never noticed on the um the far from home i mean you've never noticed but other people probably never noticed like the level of detail they go to so there's one point where the his crush his girl he really likes she says you should use a vpn when you go when you go overseas or whatever because so the government can't track you and then if you're paying attention if you like pause it like right at the exact moment when at one point they zoom in on his phone you see he is using a vpn but like it's just a little icon in the upper and like that's the level of detail they go to to like no one's noticing that but they put it in anyway like and this, there's well, so when you've good. got a budget of three hundred million dollars or whatever, yeah. you know, <laughs> there's so much. There's so many little things that like they put the detail. When you put in that detail, of course, the work's going to turn out. You know, the people care, and it's really going to be awesome. So, sure, I'm not. I, I'm not doubting the impressiveness of these movies. Yeah, yeah. So going back to the story at hand, so 1930s. So going back, so he did all this stuff with Bank, but there was a point when when Giannini did decide to retire again. So 1930, he decides to retire, sells a stake. Goes moves to Europe. However, he goes there, and then he's hearing back from back home. The guy who took over the Bank of Italy or Bank of America, he ends up running it, going right back to running it like a traditional bank of the day, only lending to the wealthy and businesses, right? And so he's and then Giannini's not happy about this, so he goes back to the U.S., rallies a lot of the the employers and depositors of the bank, and so he rallies them all together. They drum up enough money to get the controlling share of the company, and then he's back in charge at this point, and he's back running it the way he was. And he did not retire again, ever. Um, so much like the... And you might think, Giannini, surely he retired crazy wealthy because literally when he died at 79 in 1949, he'd been running this company for basically a half century at this point, right? So in mm -hmm. salary alone, as the lead of this major company, he's probably going to be super wealthy, right? Uh, let alone like the stock and all that. And no, he dies in 79, 1949. He has $500,000. That's his whole entire net worth, everything he owns. And that's about $5 million today, which is a lot, but like, that's not, but it's not compared to what he did. His company was worth billions at the time he died. So like, you know, and not adjusted for inflation, like literally billions. Um, so it, it's like, how, how did that happen? And so he, he turns out he pretty actively, uh, avoided acquiring great wealth. So most of his career, he did refuse pay at all. Like he didn't want it. Um, he basically just wanted enough for him to get by comfortably and be able to do, you know, live a comfortable life and all that. And so at one point, the, the board actually, things were booming, business booming. And so they tried to give him $1.5 million, which is about $27 million today at the time. Uh, so adjusting for that at the time, they tried to give it to him. And he tries to give it to him, so they do give it to him. But he immediately turns around and donates it to the University of California. And he states, Money itch is a bad thing. I've never had that trouble. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't care about that. So, no. so yeah, speaking um, of not a lot of money, so we're going back to now wrapping it, or I should say circling all the way back uh, to part one on It's a Wonderful Life. So it debuts, as we mentioned, December 20th, 1946. And the film cost roughly $3.7 million to make, which is about $48 million today. But it ended up, you think like this is one of the most, you know, widely considered one of the best films of all time. And it was a flop, mm -hmm. like a complete flop at the time. So it made about $3.3 million. So it didn't even make back its initial budget, let alone advertising and all that. So, and it, it did end up, it was the 26th, best earning film of the year uh, and that was out of like 400 so it's like not bad 
uh, of that year. And, and note here, Miracle on 34th Street, which we mentioned in the uh, quick fact of the last episode, that actually was uh, one place one place ahead of Miracle on 34th Street. So they were 27th. What was the mir- what was Miracle on 34th Street? That was the yeah. So that was that was another Christmas one. That that was the one that came out in June uh, instead of Christmas, despite being a major Christmas movie. So yeah, that was one that was uh, one place behind the thing. The um, it's a wonderful life. But uh, so you think you know that it, I mean that's actually not that bad, like 3.3 million. But it ended up because it did end up being a major money loser for Capra's company. That actually contributed quite significantly to the Capra's company going bankrupt. And uh, Stewart also further doubting his ability to continue to act and whether he should at all following the war. And so mm-hmm. he would later come to think of it as one of his best. And on that note, like this was the quote we um, alluded to earlier. So his co-star, Donna Reed. So she was actually blown away by his ability to act. And she states, He's so natural, so realistic, that I never knew whether he was talking to me or doing the scene. He's the most demanding actor I've ever worked with. Yeah, so, um, and he, yeah, he did end up coming to like that. So the, the public ended up, you know, not loving the movie, but the, they did actually get nominated for five Academy Awards, but it did not win any. Uh, and the only reason it's really like remembered today is because it is considered a Christmas movie. But if you watch the movie, now you haven't seen it, but if you watch it, it's not a Christmas movie. Like there's a Christmas scene at the end. The entire movie is not a Christmas movie. And this Capra was very surprised that people considered it a Christmas movie. But it was at that closing, that really feel-good moment at the end. Uh, and that was kind of wrapped everything up. So that that major pivotal part of the movie was Christmas-related. It wasn't really about mm-hmm. Christmas per se. That wasn't really a message. So yeah, Capra, he didn't think it was a Christmas movie. But the general public sure did. Uh, it probably helped that it was uh, released in December. So, um, And so then slowly over time, and it took a lot of years, it gained momentum over the years as a as a classic Christmas movie. People started watching it. It became more and more popular. And today, the American Film Institute considers it one of the 100 greatest American films ever made and the number one most inspirational American film of all time, according to them. Uh, wow. Is, is, that, is that movie. But yeah, a bit of a flop in its day. So that is the main part of this. And we're going to talk a little bonus facts now. Sounds good. If you like. So in the scene, in, the, in It's a Wonderful Life, there's a scene when Uncle Billy, he's drunk and he's leaving... Uh, kind of steps out of scene. Uh, it's the scene right before where, you know, George Bailey is considering going to visit his basically his future wife. And so Uncle Billy, he's drunk and he kind of meanders off. And at this point, uh, you hear him running into it sounds like garbage cans or something like that. And then he's like, he yells like, I'm all right, I'm all right. And then, you know, George Bailey character, you know, he goes with it. But it turns out this wasn't planned at all. A stagehand actually just dropped a bunch of stuff at the time and made like a huge ruckus and the the actor yeah. the actor who played uncle billy thomas mitchell just you know randomly just shouted just to keep the scene going and then jimmy stewart played along uh but it was all ad lib and that scene is the one that made it into the movie and they ended up because they thought it was funny and like a good scene they, they ended up giving the stagehand a ten dollar bonus which is about 130 dollars today for dropping all this stuff while they were filming and making the huge ruckus and another thing i just thought this was interesting because if you watch the scene there's a scene where donna reed she throws a rock and hits this tiny little glass on the window that's quite far away, or at least it looks like it when they're filming. I don't know if they did some sort of like perspective thing, to, and it was actually a lot closer, but it looks like it's far away. And she throws this rock to make a wish to marry George Bailey, and uh, she hits it, this little tiny window. And it turns out their original plan was to have her throw the rock, and then they had a sharpshooter who was going to shoot the window out to make it look like she actually did this, but it wasn't necessarily. She threw it and nailed it dead center on the window, and that's a little piece of window and, and shattered it. Turned out she had a good uh, throwing arm. And she actually, 
grew up on a farm and at one point also Lionel Barrymore bet her uh convinced her I should say to to demonstrate to everyone on the set how to milk a cow I don't know how they got a cow on the set just a sec is it is it normal to like make a wish by throwing a rock through a window is that I, I mean feel just like that's mentioned as a normal thing is that what what's the story there? I mean, I guess back then I've heard of, I've finally heard of that, um, but I, I don't, you think, have? I don't think it's people. Yeah. Like an old abandoned building or something, but I don't think it's a thing people, anyone does now. I don't think, I don't know, but I mean, maybe yeah, I've just we heard just of call it. call that vandalism. Yeah. Maybe I've just heard of it because I've seen, you know, like in the movie or whatever. So I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, and I did want to go back to wrap up Jimmy Stewart's story, which we started in part one to talk about a little bit more of what happened after. Uh, it's a wonderful life besides becoming a general in the military. So he ended up acting and, you know, there were several flops, but also a bunch of critically acclaimed films and uh, ended up becoming, again, maintaining his status as a top tier actor for quite some time. And so this one thing that was critical that happened in 1950 was so at the time, top tier actors always just kind of you work for money up front. And some of the lower end actors who were around, they would sometimes work for like a percentage of this or that because uh, they couldn't, you know, studios didn't want to pay them or whatever, but it wasn't like a popular thing the top tier actors did too often at this point. Mm-hmm. But at one point he's going to do the film Winchester 73. Uh, and and uh, also they wanted him for the film Harvey as well. And so Stuart, he asked for both films. He wants $200,000. And they say, the studio says, nope, we're not going to pay that. Uh, that's too much. And so he then switches to asking for a percentage of the gross. And this ended up working out for him. He took home about $600,000 for Winchester 73 alone. That's about $6.3 million today, which, I mean, to actors today, like the top tier, will make that anyway. But back at the time, that was like an insane amount of money for an actor to make on a single film. And this, you know, other top tier actors started taking notice and they were like, wait a minute, we should just do that. Like, and so then that kind of launched really popularly a lot of top tier actors doing that, like working for the gross or working for a combination of the two rather than just getting paid and, you know, not again. Um, And then speaking of Jimmy Stewart's broad things he was good at, he was also, he wrote a book of poetry. Like over his life, he wrote poetry on the side. And there's a famous one from Johnny Carson's The Tonight Show, which he would sometimes come on and read various poems. And so one of them was written about his dog, and the title of the poem is Bo. And uh, I was going to have you read it, but it's just better just to go watch uh, for people. I'll link it in the description to go watch Jimmy Stewart reading this. A poem that he wrote about his dog that died. And it starts out really funny, uh, but then it actually by the end, so he's crying at the end of it. And then you look at Johnny Carson is also trying to not cry very, you know, he's got some tears as well. So uh, on the, mm-hmm. the inspiration for the poem, Stuart, Stuart states, After Bo died, there were lots of nights when I was certain that I could feel him getting into bed beside me and I would reach out and pat his head. The feeling was so real that I wrote a poem about it and how much it hurt to realize that he wasn't going to be there anymore. Yeah, so Dana Carvey and Dennis Miller would parody this on Saturday Night Live, and eventually it would find its way into Jimmy Stewart and his poems, which is a compilation of his poems. So he is a published poet as well, um, other things. So <laughs> Just to add to it, yeah, yeah, why not? Yeah, and so it was, by the sort of sort of the tail end of his acting career, he was taking roles that were pretty minor. And so like in 1978, he took the role of The Magic of Lassie, which was a huge flop, and like everyone was like, that's way beneath you. You're like one of the greatest actors of all time, and you're doing this like... Theme. I love in the notes you wrote... To the dismay of critics. Yeah. It's like, what are you doing, Jimmy? Yeah, seriously. But Stuart said, while he was still being offered a lot of roles, uh, he states it was the only one he got that at the time that didn't have sex, profanity, and graphic violence. And he didn't want to be in movies that had any of those at the time. So he, he uh, was turning down most roles. And then he did his final role 
which I don't know if a lot of people realize this was him and not just like someone parodying him. Uh, so Wiley Burp in the 1991 An American Tale, Fifel Goes West, which I really liked that one when I was a kid, but um, and the first one, of course. But yeah, that was his final role as an actor. And so, yeah, and, and he spent most of the last years of life when he was kind of retired uh, trying to spread a greater understanding of the public's uh, of the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights and their importance in promoting education and stuff. He did that a lot. And he ended up dying of a blood clot in his lung on July 2nd, 1997. And so over his life, to sum up, he was uh, at one point a hardware store shop hand, a bricklayer, a road worker, an assistant magi magician, one of the world's top actors, of course, uh, an investor on the side, a noted pilot and flight instructor as well, uh, a war hero, and of course a general in the military, and uh, a philanthropist as well. And of course he had, as mentioned, the bachelor's degree in architecture from Princeton. So that wraps up. Just as the cherry on top. And the, the episode today. Very nice. Jimmy Stewart. I, this was my favorite thing. I had no idea about... I mean, I, I, I think we did a video about him being the general like a while back. Yeah. But other than that, like I had no idea about all this crazy stuff he did. It's, uh, it's pretty yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, everybody, I guess this is probably the last episode we do before Christmas and the New Year and stuff, right? Yeah, most likely. Well, have a very Merry Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrate and New Year and all of that good stuff. Uh, leave us a review if you fancy it on wherever you get your podcast. When we get to a thousand reviews, we're going to give away a thousand dollar Amazon gift card. So there's that little incentive for you to take some action and leave us a review. That would be awesome. Uh, anyway, yes, I suppose that's it. Anything you want to add? Anything I need to add that I've forgotten? Sounds good. All sounds good. Well, we'll be back in the new year with some more episodes and uh, thank you everybody for listening. Oh my gosh, that got intense. <laughs> <laughs>